I'm Duncan McNichol. And I'm Dominic Norberg. Uh, and this is a, an episode of... Not exactly rocket science. It um, is indeed. It's uh, it's the new season. Um, season two, season as we like to call it. Yeah. The second season. Or the autumn season. But yeah, I mean, so not exactly rocket science if this is your first episode. I'm a, a physicist and a chemist. Um, and I'm an electrical engineer turned optical physicist, yeah. I guess. So we, we both pretty much work in optical physics now um but we have we have different backgrounds um but yeah so we we know how uh numbers and and physical processes work but not so much necessarily how biology works um we're learning as we go um because we work in the uh the qmri which is the queen's medical research institute here in edinburgh and so what we do is we talk to people who do work in the life sciences who do know what they're talking about because what they're talking about is not exactly rocket science it's way harder than rocket science, nine times out of ten. It must be much harder. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. Today, um, we are talking to uh, David Henderson, um, who is in Inverness. Um, we did try to arrange a, an in-person meet-up with, uh, with David, but sadly it, it didn't work because we all have such busy schedules. But yes, we've set up an online chat. We should, we should probably let David introduce himself. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, I'm David Henderson. I am uh, well now into my fourth year of PhD uh, at the University of Glasgow um, in the College of Social Sciences there. Um, I'm a bit, I suppose, a mature student, you could say. I'll, I'll maybe not give away my age, but uh, lots of different careers in the past. I, I tried a few different things. I joined the army when I left school um, and was in the infantry for a number of years. That's yeah, different. Definitely. I was in the pipes and drums. I played side drum and, uh, at school and that's all I wanted to do. Um, so I was in the army for about seven years in the infantry and uh, travelled quite a bit of the world with them, which was great. And then left and um, started to do a Scottish music degree, but kind of dropped out of that after about a year and then did kind of odd jobs. I worked for the BBC for a while as a T-boy and then worked my way up a little bit and did location scouting and assistant directing. Then about, wow. oh, what year would it have been? About 2006, I think it was. Yeah, I decided I wanted to grow up a little bit and do something a little bit more serious. And um, I took up nursing, actually. I went to, it was the first time I'd gone to uni and stuck at it then. I started my degree at Glasgow Cali it was then first year and then transferred to uh, the University of Stirling to finish off uh, my second and third years moved back up to Inverness where I'm from the Highlands obviously you can probably tell with my accent um well, Duncan might be able to tell those things. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, so we moved back up just after we got married, moved up, finished my nursing training here in Inverness and uh, worked then in the hospital here for quite a number of years. Um, but the nursing degree kind of whetted my appetite academically and you know, I did, I did okay at school, but I never really used any of my qualifications. And then, and suddenly I was like, oh, I quite, quite enjoy all this. Um, and I was lucky then after about three years to get some really good funding, which uh, um, paid for me to do my master's degree um, and give me back full time off work at the same time to study, which was really wow. incredible. And you, you, That is good funding. Yeah, it's really difficult to get it now. Um, and it was difficult then. It was quite a rigorous process, but it was fantastic. I got about a week off every four to just to study, which is really awesome. Um, so I started, I wanted to be an advanced nurse practitioner, which is very practical and, and takes on a lot of the roles that junior doctors do now. So um, you, you'll probably find as time goes on now, there's many, many more nurse practitioners and they are taking over a lot of these roles, particularly at night times in hospitals and now in GP surgeries as well, doing the routine things, um, prescribing and, and seeing patients um, and, and take it, kind of taking the weight off um, doctors a little bit. However... Is is that anything to do with? Um, so I know that at the Western General here in Edinburgh, we've got a minor injuries clinic which is nurse led. 
Um, is is that the same sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, they'll all be nurse practitioners, I'm sure. So basically, they're kind of yeah. nurses that have been quite a bit of experience will go on and do not necessarily a master's, but they will do master's level education. They'll do clinical assessment and they'll do prescribing courses as well, which means they obviously they can prescribe medicines um, and also they can detect obviously serious uh, conditions and things. They'll listen to you. They can sound your chest, listen to your heart and do all these sort of uh, advanced clinical um, examinations. So really great stuff. And, and that's really all I'd wanted to do when I started nursing. However, when I started my master's course, the first two modules were very research-based and I, I kind of got bitten by the bug, I suppose. And so, yeah, so I did, did my master's in research with Sterling. Um, I was doing that part-time while I was still working full-time. Um, I got that and towards the end of it, one of my tutors um, said, oh, I've seen this advert for a PhD, you should think about applying. And it was at Glasgow Uni. I looked at it, it was really interesting. It was a lot of the things I was interested in, particularly about people with long-term conditions, health inequalities. Um, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to get this, but I'll apply. It'll be kind of interesting interview, you know, practice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, and then I got it. So I was really, really surprised about that and delighted. Um, and I, I, I think at that at masters level, I didn't really know what a PhD was. I'd never really considered if it was something uh, a line I, I would go down. It seemed very otherworldly almost. And now here I am. I'm nearly there. Hopefully, get the thesis finished in about three months or so, three or four months. Um, and yeah, I'll have a PhD then. So it's quite quite scary. Yeah, it's mad. And so, have you you've carried on as a nurse while you've been doing the PhD? Or yeah, I am. Um, so obviously the stipend. I've, I'm married. I've got a couple of kids and a mortgage. So you know, stipend doesn't quite cover Fair all enough. of that. So it yeah. um, was kind of needing to to a bit of. So I work part time. Um, I left the wards because I just thought night shifts and it's really hard work. Um, work in hospitals, acute medicine. Um, I thought. Uh, I looked at NHS 24, which is a really excellent opportunity for me, basically, to do telephone triage. I can do 12 hours a week. They're two six-hour shifts, and the sort of income, because they're all out of hours, they're paid quite well. So um, the income from that, and plus my stipend, kind of helps me keep the kids fed, which is quite important. The panel. Fair enough. <laughs> um, for, for anyone not in Scotland, NHS 24 is the Scottish equivalent of NHS Direct. That's right, NHS 111. So, a slightly different setup um, yeah. with us. I think you get your phone out of, out of hours you, between after six o'clock uh, at night and eight in the morning. And then at the weekends, if you need GP or a, a range of services, in fact, um, you ring 111, you get go through some algorithms with a call handler. And then if you need an assessment, um, you speak to somebody like me who goes through your symptoms and figure out figures out what the best service for you is going to be at that stage or whether you know it's just a case of waiting to see your GP in the morning. Sometimes we're called, quite often we call ambulances because people phone us with crushing chest pain. Wow. So, so my experience of, of NHS 24, uh, I've, I've found them uh, exactly once and that was on New Year's Day. Um, 2017 um when i'd been bitten by a dog because wow. i was bleeding and i was like oh, what do i do um and i found them up and because i was bleeding they were concerned about tetanus yeah, um absolutely. and so they they sent me to a &E, um at one o'clock in the morning on on the 2nd of january um <laughs> which a &E was quieter than i expected yeah, yeah, i'll be honest yeah, yeah. i I, th I thought it'd be full um yeah. but no it was it was dead quiet yeah. um i got seen very quickly we've we've been talking uh for 10-15 minutes um, and we still haven't got to what your PhD is actually about 
quite, quite, quite important. Yeah, I suppose. Okay, so the title is uh, Multimorbidity and Access to Social Care, Exploiting Emerging Administrative Data Sources in Scotland. So quite right. a few different things in there. Initially, we were wanting to look quite a bit at health inequalities as well, but there's such big, broad subjects trying to shoehorn all of these into one thesis is going to be quite difficult. Um, and so multimorbidity is the main part, and that's a fairly recent sort of branch in medicine, particularly primary care, where now obviously we have a, a vastly ageing population and people are living longer, but they're also having chronic diseases for longer periods as well. And the norm in older age groups is to have more than one disease. Um, and our, our medical system is very much set up for people with, with one problem. So if you have a heart attack, then you go to hospital, you see a cardiologist, they deal with you and they prescribe you some medicines and that hopefully helps you get a little bit better. However, if you've also got COPD because you've been smoking all life, you also go and see a respiratory specialist who has special medicines that they want you to take. You take those and you may have other problems like arthritis, you name it. And then all of a sudden, the numbers of medicines that you're taking really starts to go through the roof. These medicines interact with each other. And, you know, people end up with this sort of thing, treatment burden, where they've got so many different medicines, maybe making them a little iller. And trying to juggle all these different diseases and the treatments becomes very, very difficult. And generally, that's the, the job of general practitioners in primary care, trying to balance the benefits of some medicines against the risks of others and how that all bounce off all the different types of diseases somebody may have. My thesis, what's really interested in is how multimorbidity affects access to social care. Now, social care is very different from healthcare, and but now we're, we're trying to integrate the two services together. There's a really big recognition that they very much interact a lot and social care you read in the papers all the time nowadays particularly down in uh, England about how delayed discharges from hospital people are well to leave hospital but they are not safe to go home on their own and it's seen as a failure of social care and how we provide that um, this is something we've probably known about for 30, 40 years it was going to happen. We've known the population is going to age but we haven't really planned very well for the services so Scotland and Sorry, can, can I can I ask on that on that account? Uh, was it or also seen that families would be less willing to pick up the tab? Yeah, so the, well, there was also massive um, demographic changes as well, and you know historically it was always the woman's place to look after the elderly granny, um, and that, that's changed very much now, where women are much more likely to be in the workforce, to be working full time, contributing to the family as well, and also you know I think we understand now that you know caring isn't just a woman's um, place as it were you know things have very much changed yeah. and economies have changed we need women in the workforce and that means there's now that there's there's fewer people around to, to provide informal care to elderly relatives and um, because people are working a lot more or they might have younger children at the same time you get caught in that middle where you've got kids and elderly relatives and you know trying to juggle all of that it's very very difficult so there is that side to it as well big um, changes economically um but also there's many more people than there were in the past. Um, and throw into that mix as well, huge cuts recently, in the last 10 years or so, massive austerity measures has had a huge impact on local authority funding um, in all over the United Kingdom. Um, some protection in Scotland, but not a huge amount. We're, we're not very different. And when you look at uh, overall statistics, the numbers of people receiving uh, home care has drastically reduced uh, over the last 10 years or so. And so the question then is, does this have an effect on how healthcare 
people end up going into healthcare and unscheduled care, you know, unplanned admissions to hospital are very, very expensive. And what is social care at home is relatively much, much cheaper. And so the question is then, if we provide more home care, social care, community-related care, which is much cheaper, do we prevent people from getting admitted to hospital and, and, and uh, costing the NHS lots and lots of money? So so you see a clear link between short-term, like the short-term view that it's easier to cut social care than medical care because that gives less of an outcry i guess but in the end you pay more for it just for, from a, even from a purely economical point yeah, of view so potentially that's the the sort of intuitive way of looking at it there's very little evidence about any of this and that's kind of where the administrative data comes in and that's we're just scratching the surface of this now and um, trying to look at something not particularly from an economic point of view more just from service use for us but i think in future certainly the economic side of it um where we can link different data sets together, that will certainly be interesting, particularly because I think that's what changes policy at the end. If you can say you're going to save money by doing this, then you know politicians are more likely to listen to that, I think. Yeah, they, they, they much prefer saving money to, to uh, saving people. <laughs> so true. You've got to talk about the money. You've got to monetize everything. And if that, if that makes sense, then you know, you know what action might. But it's, it's true. I mean, I think... You know, it will save a lot of money, but we'll have better, you know, you'd hope it would have better outcomes for people as well. We've got great health data in Scotland. Um, social care data is not so good. Um, and linking all of these things together potentially has a, a lot of power and, and, and could tell us a lot of things. However, there are huge um, privacy issues about this. So administrative data is basically data that's created any time you use generally a public service. So if you go into hospital, um, go to see your GP, get prescribed a medicine, all of this, this is recorded in, you know, uh, databases held by the NHS. Um, so, and we can link a lot of these things together because uh, in Scotland, if you, um, to access any sort of health service, you need to be sort of registered with the general practice. And as soon as you register with them, you're given a unique number, community health index number. Mm -hmm. And that number is the magic, magic golden ticket for us in Scotland because it helps us link together so many different things together, which is great. However, and quite rightly, there's some really big privacy concerns about that because if you start linking together lots of different sources of information, even if it is anonymized, you can start telling an awful lot about individuals and, you know, that's potentially, you know, if that falls into the wrong hands, um, could have quite bad implications. Yeah, we, we had a, a an issue with, with linking data once. So in a, in a school that I used uh -huh. to work at, we had uh, anonymous uh, reviews, I guess. So, so yeah. talking about line managers. Um, but the, the form that you filled in included, you know, various boxes that you could tick. And if you were, you know, the female physics exactly. teacher, then that, that uniquely exactly. identifies That's someone. exactly the process. That's the, exactly the problem and very well described. And that's the issue. And obviously we have vast, much more data than that with many, many more variables. And it can become much easier then in that stage uh, to do it. Um, so... There are various processes that we have to go through then to to link these these data sets together, and then how we access them and, and access to them is very strictly controlled as well. Um, so there's a number of sort of ethical approvals I had to go through. I suppose the most important one is a thing called the Public Benefit and Privacy Panel, and this is a panel that sits together. If you're using any NHS source, you have to go through this panel to to get access to your data, and you have to prove that the research that you're conducting will have a an obvious public benefit, which I think and 
case of health and social care, I think we're quite, you know, we can absolutely de demonstrate that quite easily. And also that we're going to protect the privacy of individuals within that data, uh, with, with, with that data set by linking these together. The linkage with social care data, um, I think that's where the real uh, interest is coming now is cross-sectoral linkage because we've got great health data, but now people are starting to look, well, we've got quite good educational data as well. And what if we link education to health? Because we know these two things, you know, have, have an output, particularly for people living in deprived areas, tend to be disadvantaged in terms of education, and that leads into disadvantage in health later in life. Um, and it's the whole sort of life course process to that as well. And then from my point of view, at the end of life is social care, people using um, uh, home care services. So so you get this huge database, and then you sit in front of what, like an Excel sp spreadsheet, or it's a... It's a folders and folders of printed paper or is it other statistics programs or? sure so yeah so certainly statistical programs i use r to to, to analyze all the data um so it sits in a um the, the, the files come through as usually csv or sometimes excel files but i uh, read them into r and i use that then to analyze all all the data so um most of the health data is in, in fairly good nick um, but certainly still needs cleaned up and um, we need to check all the variables we check for duplicates in the files uh, data quality is a massive issue um, and we need to make sure because the data has not been collected for research purposes so you know going back to your example you know yeah. you've got a tissue sample or you, you know in sort of hard science you you have a theory i'm going to collect this data even in social science you can collect surveys but it's it's a uh, perspective which is this is very much retrospective and it's observational and data that's collected for a completely different reason. So we've got to be really, really careful. We need to really understand the data, what it was collected for, and will it, is it able to answer our research questions um, properly? So that's a huge part of it is it's going through the collection, uh, the, the data cleaning process. How do, how do you learn that? As in, like, is there a best practice or did you do, take any courses on that or is it just making it up as you go? So there are some good courses out there. Part of it, uh, on the cleaning side of it, being able to just physically wrangle the data, um, there are good courses out there. There's a lot, ours useful in that it's got a great community background and there's so much on the internet that you can learn with and there's some great packages um, that do a lot of the hard work for you and terms of wrangling and cleaning data and that you can write very people have written functions that you can then apply to any sort of data set and they're very useful and, and that's it just for cleaning and, and um, getting the data in the right format in the first place as well but actually looking at the the uh, variables and assessing the quality of them um, I think domain knowledge and I think this is where my nursing background has been really really helpful in that I know what each of these variables are collected for and what they mean in terms of and the medicines as well not knowing um because obviously there's millions you know people get lots of different uh, as an example you know prescriptions they might get different creams they may get um uh, an antibiotic once off and that's not necessarily going to indicate that they're having regular prescribed medicines and being able just to kind of um go through that vast database and figure out, say, well, I can get rid of this medicine because I know that's not really what I'm interested in. And, you know, domain knowledge is very, very useful in that respect. And then in terms of unscheduled care, the unscheduled care data mark data that I've got, I, I work in unscheduled care. In fact, a lot of the data that's in there, I've probably helped 
collect because I sit at a computer screen at work and fill in the variables and you know that's in the end that's what's getting you know the aggregate stats come out of that as well having you know worked in the health service you can you know you, you know how people work travel through it and, and and the types of treatments and things that they're that they're receiving and so the data makes a little bit more sense and that's in that way and you can say right okay you know, if there's data error as well, you, you can say that's there's something wrong with that 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 data set there, and that or that row of data. You can look at it and go, no, there's absolutely something wrong. That's impossible, or there's some spurious numbers in there. Why is that? Or, you know, so dropping, you know, dirty data is it's really that's an important part of it as well. One one question that pops into mind is like, how do you how do you um, communicate your findings then, um, especially when you're talking about tens or hundreds or I don't know how many variables you have in one data set and then you see all your links and your statistics and um, I guess in R you can plot like this over that and the connection between this with that and all the kind of stuff and like how do you how do you visualize it without printing a book every time you analyze a data set yeah sure so we would try and look I suppose we're trying to summarise into groups. Really, that's the big the big side. Are there different groups? Is there variation in groups? That's what we're really very much interested in. Can you use tables? Obviously, with just counts and things like that. But I prefer visualisation if I can. I'm trying to visualise as much as possible. So bar charts. I've done a couple of maps as well. Heat maps. Just looking at the level of or a number of people per thousand receiving home care at local authority level, and you can plot that as a heat map using some shape files. Uh, get that in and new versions of. GG plot, which is out in R now, it's really easy to map stuff like that, which is great, uh, really, really helpful. Um, just line charts over time as well, looking at variation in time and um, uh, checking variation by breaking things down, like I say, by age and, and sort of uh, sex groups as well. And then modeling stuff as well, absolutely going to be looking at models. One of the big part we're hopefully going to be doing, that's the last bit of analysis, I haven't quite got there yet, is we're wanting to model um, whether the amount of um, uh, social care or home care somebody has received in one year is um, has an effect or protects against uh, the amount of unscheduled health care they use in the following year. How long how long did it take you to get into yeah. um, into statistics? Because that's what we see here all over the place mm. as well. Is that um, there's a quite often people are very uncomfortable with statistics, and then it's like, oh, I don't know which test to use, and I'll use something that works or that gives me statistical significance yeah. although it might be um yeah. completely inappropriate so, so yeah how, yeah, how did you get into that absolutely say i am not comfortable with <laughs> certainly not <laughs> um, and, but it's you know something that you kind of pick up along the way certainly started off when i was doing my masters but that was very simple stage just doing things like you know t-tests and um you know the differences between groups differences between means and things like that and you need these sorts of things for any sort of uh, any science, I suppose, but certainly in social science as well. Um, and I think it's just over the period, over the PhD period, reading up on lots of different things, looking at papers and looking at how they analyse their data and then figuring out if you're going to be able to use that with your, with your data or not. I, I still, you know, I say simple regressions. Um, I, haven't, I haven't done that part of the analysis yet either. And obviously my supervision team have been really, really helpful and a big shout out to them. They're very experienced and they kind of keep me on the right track as well. Um, and they'll look over my results and say, well, that doesn't make sense or that's not, you know, that's the wrong sort of um, uh, technique to use. Um, again, a lot of 
Googling, I think, is is important and obviously from good sources. Um, and, and trying to figure out the, if you're using a model, is that appropriate for the type of data that you've got? So it's taking. I'm not comfortable with it, I suppose, and I still always, even still, even you know, recently doing. Is this the right model I'm using? Are that you know, what are the you know? How do I interpret it, this model? Is this making sense? And am I making sense of it as well? So it's a tough part. I mean, I. It's very much part of the process, and like I say, if you read lots and lots of papers on the same subject, then you start to get used to the the terminology and and how it's applied. Um, but it's difficult, and I think help getting help is the most important thing, and asking people that do know what they're talking about and say, "Is it okay for me to do this? Does this make sense? Is this the right model to use?" is an important thing um, from that. So instead of being comfortable with statistics, you're comfortable with asking people. Really, guys, if this doesn't make sense, tear it apart and tell me how to improve it. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah, that's important. I think. Yeah, and I mean, I, I feel that's what kind of the hardest part for me. I don't have a statistics background. I didn't do a statistics undergrad, and it's um, you know, so it's great having the domain knowledge is really really useful. But I'm probably weaker on that side of things. And I think it's understanding that knowing where it is <clears throat> and knowing when to ask for help. So, uh, in terms of uh, my understanding of, of what it is that you do, you're, you're looking at um, multimorbidity, which is when um, when patients have uh, more than one thing wrong with them, and that's serious things or chronic things. Um, and you're you're you've managed to get this sort of huge data set um, out of uh, uh, well, not. I was going to say you've got it out of the people who hold it, but you haven't. They they still very much hold it. Um, but you're you're able to use it, um, and you're linking together these um, health statistics, which are uh, are very good, with uh, social care statistics, which are maybe lesser. Um, and certainly, from what you've said, they haven't really been linked together in the past. Um, and so you're looking at at how um, how the two things correlate with each other. Is that does that seem reasonable? That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, that's yeah. a pretty good summary. Better than me rabbling on for an hour, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's been a very interesting hour for us. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, th- thanks very much. Thank um, you very much for inviting me on. I was delighted to be asked. It was over the moon. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, that was a very interesting chat with David. Um, uh, yeah, somewhat, somewhat out of the ordinary, somewhat um, out of the ordinary, not not just for my everyday life, but for the podcast, I think. Um, but it was it was quite interesting to chat to someone about social sciences. Um, and it's also good to see, you know, that like from from medical research to medical practice, you actually have to look a bit further than that because I think sometimes we talk about the gulf between the research and the practice yeah. or the application, but actually. It goes beyond that, that you can't just say, you can't just dump AGP within area of X people mm. and then you're fine. Yeah, the, I guess the medical research that we focused on so far is, you know, what are we going to give to patients rather than looking at what actually, you know, like what works for patients in the real world or, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a good chat. Um, yeah, it, it'd be nice to uh, to meet David someday. <laughs> um, hopefully we can set that up at some point, but uh, probably not record it. Probably not. Yeah. No, not without his consent. <laughs> no, no. We might anonymize him. Yeah, yeah. We can we can anonymize him him completely, completely. I'm sure we just we just be like we're we're talking to someone from Inverness who's a nurse who used to be in the army and who, who now does research into <laughs> the link between social care and multimorbidity. That can't uniquely identify anyone. No, no. Yeah. Listen to our podcast. <laughs> um yeah uh so yeah you should listen to our podcast i mean you already are listening to our podcast but you should tell your friends to listen to our podcast as well um 
just telling them the name is good enough. You can search for us in, in all good podcast apps and you can find us online uh, at, at www.google.co.uk <laughs> then type in not exactly rocket science or slightly more direct and slightly less environmentally impactful way. Yeah. Good Lord. Every Google search costs energy. So it's, it has less of an environmental wow. impact if you type an address directly and go to the web page directly rather than type in exactly what you want, which in this case would be not exactly rocket science dot FM yep. to your browser and go to our page. Directly. Save energy. Save energy. Save yeah. the world. So yeah, save some energy. Go directly to our site, not exactly rocket science.fm. Look for us on Twitter at exactly rocket. That's probably quite energy intensive, actually. Don't do that. Um, but yeah, uh, and and you know, the main thing is search for us in podcast apps, subscribe, and then every new episode will just magically turn up. Magic. Cool. Actually, it's computer science. Yeah, it's one hundred percent computer science. <sighs> <laughs>